Before we begin today's episode, I want to let you know that it is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or any online store idea that you have kicking around in your head. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code WORDS at checkout to get 10% off. That's WORDS, W-O-R-D-S, 10% off. Squarespace.com. Build it beautiful. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins, bringing you conversations with people surrounded by, influenced by, or currently involved with independent music. I'm trying to get my intros a little bit, uh, I don't know, more varied, because I'll bet you if you listen to the 160-some-odd episodes before this, all the intros are, generally speaking, pretty the same. So, you know, improvisational here. So I apologize if I trip over my words. Um, That's just, I guess, the nature of this particular uh, spouting-off-the-mouth business. But that's not why you tuned in. You tuned in for the guest. And most of you that are intelligent already know, because you can read on your phones or whatever iTunes listening device that you may have. But the guest this week is Will Potter. He is a journalist. He has also wrote a book called Green is the New Red, which uh, focuses on the idea of the animal agriculture business and how these people who are trying to rally against the factory farming industries are targeted as terrorists which uh, scares many, many people because this law can be extrapolated to uh, you know a person just filming the outside of something like a factory farm and then they're labeled a terrorist. The book is an incredible read. He's also done a couple of TED Talks. Basically, this dude is a very, very smart individual presenting some very compelling ideas that, um, yeah, just need to be paid attention to. So I was very excited because uh, basically he came from the same world that many of us have had experience with, which is, you know, punk, hardcore, independent music. So I had a great, great discussion with Will and uh, I'll I'll bring him on in a moment, but wanted to hit a few other things before we uh, did the talk, so to speak. I have been waking up very, very early recently. And like I say very, very early, like basically the past like six months, I've been waking up at like 5 a.m. And let me tell you, it's awesome. (laughs) And I know this is going to be uh, maybe counterintuitive to some of you who are just like, dude, I am not a morning person. That sounds like an awful idea. So... But basically, you get more stuff done in a day when you're waking up early. And now granted, I'm going to sleep maybe, I don't know, half an hour earlier than I normally would. So, you know, I'm going to sleep at like maybe 1030-ish, maybe 11 at the very latest. But uh, it's great because you get so much stuff done. So it's like I wake up, go work out, do my thing there, come home, you know, get the kid ready, make sure the wife's all taken care of. And then, you know, I go about my day. But it's just, it's so great to be able to wake up not feeling like you're, uh, I guess, proverbially behind the eight ball because you know there's sometimes where you wake up like five minutes before you need to do something and i hate that so uh i encourage you to just sample it out maybe wake up like 15 minutes earlier you know maybe do some deep breathing in bed something to kind of put you in a state of relaxation where you can kind of take on the day and um i don't know it's just something that i have noticed myself being generally much happier because i've been doing this even though i'm waking up earlier but 
such good stuff. Anyways, I appreciate so many of you got in touch with me in regards to the audio help that I've been seeking. And so for right now, I don't need uh, any any more emails. A lot of you have reached out, which is awesome. So if I'm lagging on getting back to you, uh, that's why. And then there's also a second reason why. I just finished with my first jury duty case. Like I got selected on the jury box. I went through the whole case, went to the deliberation room, spoke to all the other jurors about the case, rendered a verdict, read it to the defendants. And dude, it is an unbelievable process. Now, I know most of you hear the words jury duty and are probably like, this jury duty is terrible. It's so inconvenient. And I mentioned this a few episodes ago. So many people view it as a burden. It's like, oh man. And granted, yes, it is inconvenient. I will give you that. But I don't know just how amazingly interesting our judicial system is and the process in which we uh, try people. Because uh, this is something that just became more clear to me where it's like, obviously, in certain cultures, laws are obviously different in different areas of the world. You can be tried, convicted by one person and not your peers, no one else that understands your situation or context. And uh, that's a pretty scary thought. So being able to observe this process from the ground up was unbelievable. And it's like this this was a, a very salacious case where it's like you're talking about kidnapping, drugs, a home invasion, a lot of stuff that, um, yeah, just made the case very uh, sometimes difficult to follow, but also just really, really interesting. So I encourage you, if you ever get a opportunity, which all of, most of us do <laughs> because we are either registered with our state's DMV or are a member of the voting world, that's how you get into jury duty. So I encourage you to do what you can to get on a jury. You know, it, it is a really, really interesting process. And anyone that's experienced it will echo my statements. I mean, granted, sometimes you might get a case that's, uh, you know, pretty boring. Like if it's a, a civil case of uh, someone doing a, uh, you know, slip and fall or something like that. Yeah, that's that's not that exciting. Um, but it doesn't necessarily make the impact of the system any less because it was just such an awesome experience to be in the room with 11 other people and have everybody focused on this thing and saying the words, we have to get this right. It was just great. And honestly, it kind of restored um, certain aspects of my faith in humanity. And I know this is like just a celebration of something that is, seems so mundane like jury duty, but it, it should be celebrated because it is a very, very awesome thing that we have here uh, in America and our, like I said, our judicial system in general. So anyways... Jury duty. Fun stuff. That's all I got to say about that. Anyways, moving right along. Like I said, Will Potter, a very enlightening conversation. I knew um, sometimes I get intimidated when I approach people who I find to be, uh, you know, in academia, because uh, at the end of the day, these are people who have dedicated their lives to going to school, learning more, becoming more accredited, whatever the case may be um, of their, uh, their their focus on why they're doing either so much schooling or so much training. Um and Will is definitely one of those people. I mean, he's a journalist first and foremost, but um, he's gone to some very prestigious universities and he spoke in front of some very, very intelligent people who have lauded what he has said in the past. If you're doing TED Talks, you're a, a pretty heady thinker. And uh, I was just excited to have Will on the show because he uh, he's contributed a lot to the uh, music scene, whether or not he would readily admit it. It's just, it's just really cool to see a person who kind of takes their ethics and is able to apply them to a larger world that uh, will hopefully be affected by those uh, those ethics. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Will Potter, and I will talk to you after the episode is over. 
namely your, uh, your your book, Green is the New Red, uh, via my day job working at PETA. Because um, obviously it's one of those things where <laughs> once one person kind of finds out about something cool in the uh, you know ecosystem, it gets spread around pretty quickly. And especially just because you have so many friends, obviously, at the organization, it spreads even quicker. But the, the thing that I, I noticed uh, more so about you than your particular piece of work, you seem... <laughs> You seem relatable, and I know that sounds very, um, uh, I don't know, like uh, simple, but uh, because obviously a lot of people who would be defined as like an intellectual were a person who's obviously gone through a lot of uh, schooling and, you know, definitely traveled down the roads of uh, higher thinking. Sometimes that those people are feel unapproachable, you know? Um, I don't know if you uh, if that's how you view yourself, but um, does that make any sense? Like what I'm trying to uh, kind of uh, ascertain there. Great to hear both about the you know the book, obviously getting passed around like that, and also um, hearing you say that. I mean, it's like that's because it's something I don't know if I actively aspire to or anything like that, but it's certainly something I value very deeply, and I think a lot of that comes from kind of my own background in both with music and activism and things like that, but just uh, a general valuing of humility, I guess, no matter what type of work you do, of constantly aspiring to make that relatable to people's everyday lives. I mean, I think that's what is really important to me about not just journalism, but all the types of work I do. It only has value in as you can actually connect to people on an individual level, uh, on a human level. And without that, it's really not much use to anyone, you know? No, it's a very good point. There definitely is that. Yeah, I think what, what what so many people feel in regards to, I mean, even just like personal relationships and, and friendships, when you feel people are using big words for the sake of big words, and they're kind of like, oh, like, what do they think? They're cool or something like that. And like, there there starts to, those barriers start to get created between people just because of, you know, insecurities and like their own, um, you know, the own, their own ego gratification of being like, oh, no, I am a smart person. But it's like, yeah, you're, you're obviously, like you said, you're not actively pursuing that but like you said you want to make it um you know a level playing field so to speak well i think that really is clearly on display like right now with the you know, the presidential campaign that's taking place what's really clear is that like people on the right especially on the far right um will speak in sound bites and really easy to understand phrasing and catchphrases and things like that people on the left always speak in these dissertations and it is this kind of valuing of that discourse and the cultural cachet that comes with it. But it's really set this respect divide between people. Um, and it doesn't make the, the message any more credible or important. It just makes it uh, less relatable to everyday people. No, that's a, that's a very, very good point. It's, it, it is one of those things where you... Um, you as a person just want to make your message clear. And sometimes people feel like the distilling or boiling down of information can make it clear. But then obviously you cross that threshold of, like you said, turning into a soundbite where you just simply are reading things and it's, there's no obviously meaning or passion behind it. Absolutely. You yourself, where were you? Uh, you were born and raised and uh, kind of came up. I grew up born and raised in Texas. Um, I grew up in the Fort Worth area and Fort Worth and Dallas moved around a little bit growing up and then was back uh, kind of suburban. Well, it was rural at the time, uh, Fort Worth, and then went to college at the University of Texas at Austin, um, which always tends to surprise people a little bit. I don't know why they expect me to either be wearing chaps and cowboy boots if I'm from Texas or have a you know, really thick drawl or something like that. But um, my family is all still back in, in Texas as well. 
Well, yeah, I think it's uh, it's probably surprising just because most people view uh, you know, Texas in general as this uh, weird hodgepodge of like, well, yeah, you have Austin, which is the coolest city, and then you have every other city in Texas, which is like, oh yeah, it's this weird, just kind of suburban-ish big town thing that doesn't really have any sort of true sense of the identity besides, yo, we're from Texas, you know? <laughs> like, there's that, there's that, that weird vibe. It's weird. I mean, Austin's Republic of Texas. You know, it's, in a town. it's its own little like uh, fortress, <laughs> defended you know walls around the city to to keep the rest of Texas at bay. But even within that, there's a there's really kind of fierce Texas pride from people you would not expect. Like even within you know kind of punk scene growing up and activist scenes, people you don't want to really appreciate that. Those other elements, Texas still have this. Uh, pride for the states. It's a weird place to grow up, in, but I think it was a, um, really shaped my perception about activism and journalism and communication in a lot of different ways. Because there's this realization that when you're in a state like that, and even if you're in a town like Austin, you realize you have to work with a lot of people with very, very different political views, and that's unavoidable. So you have to think of a very specific know skill sets to get those messages out if you actually want to bring more more people into that dialogue that that was actually something i was going to talk about a little bit later because i I do think that um especially in the notion of you know relating obviously the work that you do now with uh you know the work like you've mentioned obviously activism and you know how that directly relates to punk and hardcore there is that um you know sort of echo chamber effect where you know going to a show and uh, watching a singer of a band preach some great message about uh you know how important it is that you know whatever sexism racism whatever it may be uh but then how do you take that into the real world where you are encountering people who you know don't care that you were at a show last night and empowered by that and then like you said trying to relate that message like um because i do think that it's like people that are uh you know growing up in towns where you know maybe they have shows every night of the week and have that sort of like immediate uh response in regards to culture uh sometimes they do fall into that just like oh yeah i'm just going to surround myself with the people that agree with me yeah it's really tough i mean i kind of obsessively think about this very topic because I think it, it holds a lot of truth for how we interact in other aspects of our lives too. And you know, ultimately, I think there's a lot of value in that, even if it is this kind of echo chamber. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to outright dismiss that. I think there's a lot of value in and of itself for having that and having that type of space where you don't have to be constantly on the defensive. Now, I can obviously go to an extreme of you're not challenging yourself and you're using it as a kind of a crutch. Um, and not exposing yourself to different ideas or just taking it for granted, uh, like what you were just describing. But in some ways, if you view it as a foundational element, as a, as a starting point or as a recharging space that you can be more at ease, you know, recharge yourself and your community and, and get some of that energy um, and anger and excitement or joy and all these emotions and then go back out. Um, that's how I kind of view those spaces. In, you know, in a lot of ways, even if it is just a uh, an echo chamber, sometimes when those values are bounced back to you, that's when real uh, substantive discourse can take place. Is when you're not having to go through all these different layers and background explanations. You have a sense of shared value. You can kind of dive right into things on a different level. It's a very good point because it is it is one of those things where yeah, if you didn't have that, you obviously wouldn't have the ability to 
like you said, the sort of foundational experience to build off of. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it, it can definitely be that sort of uh, rallying cry that you need when you do, uh, you know, feel whatever the lowest of the low, when you're encountering, uh, you know, the dregs of humanity and then you're just like, Oh, what am I doing here? And then you go to, you know, you go to a show or go to your friends, hang out with, you know, hang out with them at a coffee shop and you're like, Oh, that's why I'm doing it because we all care. They're actually good people. Good <laughs> people that give a shit and care about the same things that we do. Uh, and that's sometimes reason enough to keep fighting. No, totally. That's a very good point. Um, so what was your family structure like? You, like mom and dad, brothers and sisters? What was the uh, dynamic there? Yeah, uh, my mom and dad went to high school in Fort Worth, uh, kind of nearby. Um, high school sweethearts, all that stuff, still together. I have a younger sister who's about four years younger. She's uh, down in Houston now. Yeah, you know, pretty nuclear family set up, I guess. And, uh, you know, still pretty close with my parents, with my sister as well. Nice. What did your, uh, what did your parents do for work? So my uncle had a restaurant that my mom was working at uh, um, as I was in like, spring and middle school or into high school. And then I started working there as well. And eventually she took that over and as the owner and ran that for a while. Um, and my dad works in, in finance at, a, uh, at Lockheed Martin. Um, and then my little sister went on to work at an energy company. So very different backgrounds, all of us working in different fields, but they've been, I feel incredibly fortunate that they've been so supportive of the stuff that I do and uh, the tech work I'm doing. Right, right. Yeah, that definitely is scattershot. Yeah, you don't have the uh, the, the family business being handed down or anything. <laughs> oh, no way, man. There's no way I will ever run a restaurant. <laughs> no. But yeah, I mean, especially being vegan, like you constantly come across people that have a, this dream of like opening a vegan restaurant or a diner or a coffee shop. And I'm like, nope, like don't even talk to me about your, your daydreams. I don't want to hear it. That is the worst. <laughs> it, like, it never ends. It's, it's just, oh man. Yeah. I do not ever want to open a restaurant. Right. And I have a respect that for the people that are able to do that successfully. Cause I know, how much work uh, goes into that and how late the nights are and early the morning and uh, all that, you know, running around getting stuff at the last minute, dealing with staff. It's just, it's a lot of hard work. Yeah, no, you're, you're definitely right. It's, it's, it's definitely a romantic notion. And then when the rubber hits the road, that's when it's like, Oh my gosh, (laughs) there's so much work into this. And granted, I say this as a, uh, a writer. (laughs) So it's like, talk about, (laughs) talking about romantic notions right like yeah, that's like the stereotype the, the ultimate romantic notions about being a writer and then you do it and you're like well this isn't an industry that really pays anymore book publishing does not pay any money <laughs> like right. you know don't even exist for the most part anymore uh with that being said i guess it's easier to see it from a distance yeah, the uh, the romantic notion of of you writing by candlelight, like <laughs> just the, every cl- every cliche that you can imagine. Exactly. Um, <laughs> when so uh, you know, what kind of kid did you find yourself being as you were you know kind of forming your own identity? Like, uh, was was music introduced to you uh, like in high school? Did that kind of start infiltrating your your life then, or where did that uh, come into play? It's hard to say. I mean, around like so we moved out of the state for a little bit. And then I came back at the start of seventh grade, which I think for every kid is just like a nightmare time. And I remember coming back to, uh, to Texas and we're signing up for classes and stuff. And 
you had to pick your extracurricular, whatever. And the, I remember the guidance counselor being like, uh, asking me what I want to, sport I wanted to play. We had previously lived in Virginia, and, you know, on the East Coast, kids around that time, a lot of them were starting to play lacrosse. I was like, oh, I want to sign up for lacrosse. And I remember them just looking at me like, son, we have football and football. <laughs> so, you know, I signed up for ball. So, like, I tried my best to go in that certain path. Um, but it was around that time that I started seeking out anything I could find um, in terms of music or just stuff outside of that vein. And I think around, like, eighth grade, uh, a friend's older brother uh, passed on some bad religion albums like Against the Grain and uh, whatever else I think it was Generator and then you know that quickly led into like Operation Ivy and Gorilla Biscuits and all that kind of stuff um, and that really was a huge turning point for me I mean I was still still Texas like we had to drive hours to go to shows all that kind of stuff but um, just finding that and ordering records through the mail um, just based on their names or <laughs> you know, or liner notes of other bands. That was a really huge uh, thing for me growing up in, in that type of environment. I mean, I, I never felt really completely immersed in it. I mean, I felt like I, I kind of was in that and going to shows and doing as much as I could being in uh, that type of space in Texas. But when I got to college, it was, I was able to really go head on and really became immersed in that scene, I guess. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I always reflect on on the times when when people are describing on this particular show, like when you first start to discover that stuff. It's it's always incredible because it's devoid of context. You know, all your it's such a visceral reaction that you have to the music, to the imagery, whatever it is you're drawn to. Um, and it, it's so special because yeah, you're not. <laughs> you know, the older you get, the more delineations you do in your own mind in regards to like, oh, I can't like that band because of this particular scene or whatever. But it's like you just you know, when you're whatever, 14, 15 years old, you're just shoving everything into your head. And it's like, it doesn't matter. I'll find a space for it. Absolutely. And I'll find a space that can are totally, you know, incongruous with that. I mean, and I think that's what I really think about that time of, oh yeah, it's totally fine to pick up, you know, a crass album alongside some, you know, Southern California skate punk bands. Like that totally makes sense. Like just give, give me all of it. I just want to figure out what's going on in this world. Right, right, totally. Yeah, it's just, you just want inputs. That's all you need. Yeah. Did you care about school as you were kind of going through it, or was it one of those things you were going through the motions? No, I definitely did. Um, I think that kind of speaks to how I approach my work now, too. I mean, I have these kind of competing, I don't know if they're competing personalities or worlds I've operated in, but, um, you know, I've always liked school. You know, I mean, wasn't one of those kids that was like using every chance to cut class or, didn't see any value in it or whatever. Like I, I remember it was funny. I did a um, speaking event with uh, Greg from Trial, and we were talking about these type of issues and what were some of the most formative influences in my life and in our lives. And the two that I picked out were Finding uh, Punk and Hardcore, and then Debate Team. And uh, you know, I chose the Debate Team because it was that same spirit that really drew me to punk in a lot of ways of just trying to get information and having a space where you can think critically and ask tough questions and um, seek out, you know, dissent. And, and in that environment, like it was kind of life-changing for me, you know, having a, a permission to read 
civil disobedience by Henry David Thoreau under 15 or 16. I mean, that just completely blew my mind. Um, and that set me down a very different um, rabbit hole than I would have been on otherwise. So yeah, I mean, I definitely had that kind of nerve trend that stuck with me throughout my whole life as well. Nice. It's very cool. I, I always get um, uh, inspired when people obviously share a story like that, because I do think that there's this premium that's ridiculously placed on kids in high school, especially. Um, and I don't think it's it's changed really necessarily now of, you know, like being smart isn't necessarily like cool. Like, and that's never been the case. So it's like when you start to, you know, see a kid, like whatever, reading 1984 and they're, you know, freshman in high school, it's like, it gives you that like sense of like, that's rad. I'm so glad that they're finding that, you know? And like, like you said, just that, that ability, that permission to be able to, uh, you know, dive headfirst into, it doesn't even have to be counterculture thought. It just has to be thought, <laughs> you know? You know, and it wasn't completely independent either. I mean, I, I remember I signed up like, there wasn't really anybody doing debate at my school. When I signed up, I just thought like, oh, that sounds kind of fun. I went to one of my first um, competitions or whatever, and I met a couple of kids that, that like changed after they had to wear for the actual debate. And they had, you know, like seven seconds t-shirts on and were just punks. I was like, holy shit, like this is, this makes sense to other people too. Like you can have these two very different worlds you're operating in and you can like these types of things together. And that was just this um, like stamp of legitimacy from someone else that I think I needed to feel that that was okay. Uh, and that, that was huge. Yeah, you were allowed to buy in. You're like, oh, that's cool. You can do it too. Then I can. Yeah. So you don't have to be the only one trying to, to do things in some strange way. I mean, it helps, especially when you're that young, boost your confidence a little bit. Um, and so then, uh, was there ever a notion, like once you started to, uh, you know, get into the, to music that you wanted to like play in a band or did you ever play in a band? I wasn't uh, sure your background there. No, I never did. I mean, and that's kind of one of my biggest regrets in a way. I think like when I got to university of Texas at Austin, I really fell head on into that scene and also activism at the same time. And most of the time when I was at shows, we were tabling like a group of friends and I we ran distro we always had a table like at every show we possibly could with political information and zines and stickers and screening t-shirts all that kind of stuff um so that was my really the extent of my involvement in terms of um being at shows it seems like all my friends were in bands or touring um and i was more on the activist side of things and looking back on it now I mean, that's part of the reason that I've approached my work today in the way that I have in doing speaking tours overseas, like in Germany or in Spain or wherever, approaching with that similar DIY ethic because I feel like I missed out in some ways. Like I should have done that, should have um, gone on the road at that time. Um, and I missed that. Hey, now I now I can do that. Um, and I'm, you know, whatever, 20, 20 years older than when you're supposed to do that. <laughs> Right. And it's, you know, it's with the same spirit. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's with the same people. Um, and now I'm talking about a book I wrote or giving lectures, but it, I mean, it, it actually kind of feels the same of uh, just using it as an opportunity to, to do things on your own terms and to explore. Yeah. 
No, I think it's important because I, I think whether or not you know you experience it when you're 15 or whether you experience it when you're 35, it doesn't um, it doesn't necessarily matter as long as like you said the sort of principles are the same. Where it's like it's not like you're going around being like, all right, well here's my writer. I need at least a four star hotel and like I need all of these <laughs> things. Like you're just yeah you're you're showing up to a space and doing it and being like oh yeah well you know that'd be cool if like you got like ten dollars for a veggie burger somewhere. That's exactly it, and it's that sense of. Um I guess it'd be gratitude of just trying to constantly remember that this is pretty incredible. Like being able to go to other countries or even in the United States, all these different spaces and see people come up to hear what you have to say and have a place to stay. And, you know, sometimes even getting paid for it. And I mean, that's an incredible opportunity that a lot of people don't have. So just having that sense of being grateful, um, I think is really the, the common thread between back then and now. And so then uh, after you uh, graduated high school, you went to, did you immediately go to Johns Hopkins or was that, there was a transition period there? Towards the end of college, I was working at the Texas Observer in Austin, um, was traveling and covering protests like IMF and World Bank and WTO. Um, And then I took a job at the Chicago Tribune, which I was, fingers crossed, would turn into a long-term assignment, but there were all these hiring freezes going on. I also had, uh, you know, some of the experiences I wrote about in the book about uh, FBI visits and things like that when I was in Chicago. So I kind of bounced around, moved back to Austin, and then took another job in uh, Washington, D.C., covering Congress and the Supreme Court at the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, So moved up to D.C. with just a a backpack full of clothes and my bicycle and gave it a shot. And it was supposed to be, I think it was supposed to be a six-month or a year assignment, um, and stretched out. And then I've been there ever since. I mean, I led from one thing to another. And eventually I left newspapers and magazines as I wanted to focus more and more on the issues I read about today and it felt very restrictive. So I took a day job doing public relations and then went to Hopkins at night and started working on the book. I really used that graduate school experience at night as a chance to try to start making that transition from newspaper and magazine to conceptualizing an entire book that I wanted to do in a narrative, uh, in a narrative nonfiction way, which was completely overwhelming to me. So I just used every workshop, every opportunity I could to try to share bits and pieces of the book with people who had no idea about any of this stuff and see how they responded. And, And that's really how the book came about. Pardon the interruption here, but I want to tell you about an awesome service that I am very passionate about because I've used it multiple times. So Squarespace, you heard me talk about it at the very top of the show, but I'll give you a little personal anecdote to let you know what I used it for and how awesome it was. So a couple years ago, I ran a music festival with a friend of mine, and of course, we needed our own online platform to sell tickets, to inform people of the bands playing, all that sort of stuff. And I was like, you know, I I don't know what to do. I don't really know the mechanics of building a website besides like, you know, maybe signing up for something, and that's kind of it. So I asked a friend, and he was like, oh, dude, Squarespace, this will be so easy for you. And it was. It was amazing. The site looked completely professionally designed, regardless of skill level, which honestly, as far as design is concerned, it's very low on my skill level. Very intuitive, many, many easy to use tools to get whatever it is that you want to do 
on your site. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. Because let's be honest, if your site crashes, that's like the worst thing of all time. It's trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. And plans start at $8 a month. $8 a month to get your thing out of your head into the real world and impacting people's lives. That's what I did with this music festival and it was super, super easy. The website no longer exists, I, otherwise I would direct you to it, but it was, like I said, super simple to update. It was awesome. So start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And then when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, please use the offer code WORDS, W-O-R-D-S, to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. I did. You should do it as well. So there's a company called Loot Crate. Me, myself, I completely identify with what they're doing because I love pop culture, I love video games, geeky stuff, and they are the perfect subscription box for people such as that. So basically what you do, you sign up using the website lootcrate.com backslash words, and then you get $3 off a subscription. But what does that subscription get you? 40 plus dollars worth of toys, shirts, collectibles, comics, it's delivered to your mailbox every single month. Basically, it's like having a best friend who's into all the coolest stuff possible being like, yo, 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 Ray, you, you want some cool stuff? How about I send it to you once a month? It's not even very expensive. You know, how about I give you a few bucks off? And then the box shows up and then it's like, oh my gosh, this month is all based around The Walking Dead or this month is all based around like Marvel Comics. And it's like, who doesn't like Marvel Comics? This is awesome stuff. I've seen what they send out and it's definitely not just like, oh, cool. Here's like, a, here's a pin and a t-shirt and all right, I'll talk to you next month. This is like real high quality, fun stuff. Basically, it's like Christmas every month. This month, it's celebrating all the monsters you can possibly fit in your pocket and the ones that you also need to, uh, you know, maybe have a different place on your shelf for them. Plus, they have awesome items from Blizzard, Kid Robot, and exclusive stuff that you cannot find anywhere else. That's the important part. Exclusive. So this is stuff that basically only Loot Crate is offering you. Go to LootCrate.com backslash words and get $3 off. You need to do that by September 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Otherwise, you miss this month's box and then you'll have to go to the next month's box and blah, blah, blah. But LootCrate.com backslash 100 words, save $3 off. And oh, you, the international person? Yeah, they ship to you as well. 13 different countries. Just just do it. It's like Christmas every month. Super fun. Do it up. Did the idea of journalism kind of come about via like high school or is that something that like you, you started to have a passion about uh, even earlier than that? Or where did that kind of come into your head? You know, I kind of have all the, you know, cliche stories of like when I was really little, I remember making a magazine to, you know, pass around to kids in the neighborhood. Like I'd always been interested in writing and I guess publishing and especially with books and writing. Like I knew that was the path I was on. Um, and it was my mom actually, who I guess saw me doing those things when I was younger. And when I was a freshman in high school, signing up for classes, she was like, you know, I think this would be really cool for you. Why don't you sign up for newspaper and go to let you write? You can talk to all kinds of different people. You can learn new things. I was like, all right, gave it a shot. And I really loved it. Um, and by the time I was 17, still in high school, I was, um, during the summer, I had a job at the Dallas Morning News and actually was getting bylines and publishing. So from 17 on, that's been my life. 
back after that, went on to work at a lot of different other newspapers and magazines. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it wasn't really even journalism. There's a lot about journalism that I love. It's more of the language and the written word, which I guess what truly attracted me to it. But journalism is incredible, especially as a high school kid, because like being at the Dallas Morning News, you have the authority to ask questions, tough questions of people that in no other environment would you ever have that authority to ask. Like to, to try to be grilling a city council member um, as a 17-year-old, like you should never be able to do that. But when you have press pass, you can't. So an anti-authoritarian uh, spirit in me really loved it. And that's part of the reason I got hooked. You have a space to obviously have a voice, and then obviously it gives you the ability to not only from just the credential perspective, but just like that little vote of confidence that you need in your head to be able to jump in on that, you know? Right. And what, you know, one of the tough things about journalism today, though, is like it gives you that license, but you're also not really able to have a voice, you know, until you're much more further along in your career or you're doing long form pieces of a magazine or um, writing a book, something like that. In newspapers, you really can't have much of a voice. You can have different elements to your style or how you're working or things like that. But in a lot of ways, I feel like that's why I had to go back to, um, or I chose to go back to graduate school and start working on the book is to try to find that voice and to try to find that new permission to speak in a different way and then not having to be so straightforward in my reporting. Sure. No, that's true. Yeah. It, you, you had to uh, kind of lose the, just the facts ma'am approach and be like, Oh, what it is, what is it that I want to say? Yeah, totally. That's exactly it. And, and that's a, an overwhelming thing. I mean, to, you know, to, to make that. Shift. I know I'm jumping around here, but um, just because you're kind of, fresh off the heels off of uh, your, this is your second, I guess, official TED Talk, correct? That you just recently completed? I mean, it's such obviously an interesting uh, community that's built around that, the the sharing of ideas and just in in general. Is it one of those things, I'm just curious just from my own perspective, where is it one of those things that like walking into it, you feel like you are um, going to be going into, you know, what I would define as a cold room or a person who's like, all right, all right, kid, convince me whatever it is, whatever I idea it is you're trying to proliferate here um or is the the community that's attending these events like generally uh supportive where they're like all right like we'll we'll hear this out and we'll uh see where you're going with this um how do you how, how does that uh, sit in your head or have you noticed any similarities just because you've done two now i think both i mean one going into it everyone with ted was reminding me that the people who are there want to be there they want to hear you. They want to support you. They're very forgiving if you screw up on stage. Like they want you to succeed. And now, after being at multiple TEDs um, and now into the the senior fellowship, like I truly believe that it's an incredible community. But I think with my work, I felt like kind of an odd man out in a lot of regards. You know, it's a very tech oriented community, a very like uh, social innovation. Thing, like solving problems in um, around the world using technological innovations. That stuff is kind of the bread and butter in a lot of ways of TED. And I was coming in, you know, there've been other photojournalists. I think I was the first print journalist to be a fellow. And I was speaking about really controversial stuff. Um, and during my first TED talk, I had a slide on the, 
uh, on the screen that had all the supporters of a law called the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act that was passed by all these big ag companies, pharmaceuticals. And I knew that there were people in the audience that are high ups at those companies. And I didn't know how that was going to be taken, you know, either by Ted or um, by the community of people in the audience. And I, I think really to their credit, people were overwhelmingly open and supportive. And, um, you know, I just feel really grateful for being part of that. That's really exciting to be able to um, feel like you can obviously present, um, you know, not only controversial, but dissenting ideas to people, like you said, that are literally trying to rally against whatever it is you're trying to present and uh, to still have that sense of like, oh, well, we respect where he's coming from. We don't agree, but we respect it. Yeah, and I think that's at the core of what that space is about. I mean, it's, it's difficult to describe. You know, you see the talks online, and I know Ted has gotten to the point, to like the to the scale that is getting pushback from people, and and kind of kind of on the same note as far as the uh, you know the TED Talk and community and kind of you know whether or not you have to uh, display yourself in front of a cold room or whatever. You've been in some really what I would define as uh, very intimidating scenarios. Um, whether it's like, you know, testifying in front of uh, Congress and putting together a TED Talk. What kind of goes through your mind when, uh, let me back that up further. Um, would you define yourself as like a, you know, a extroverted or an introverted person? Introverted, um, for sure. And I would say that because after seeing, you know, definitions online talking about how you recharge, um, like I like being around people. I like being in obviously public speaking and doing media interviews and, writing about people. This is, this is my work and my passion, but at the same time, it really completely drains me sometimes. Um, so I think in that sense, I definitely recharge by having more personal space and, and being by myself. Sure. On that same note, the idea that, you know, these, these high intensity pressure situations, you know, like what, <laughs> I know this is a broad question, but just like kind of, you know, what goes through your head when you're kind of like um, either preparing yourself for that or kind of getting into these where it's like, you know, that there's going to be confrontational situations. Um, is it one of those things you just kind of, you obviously put um, that notion aside and just like, well, I'm, I'm here to do the work. I'm going to do this. Or, you know, where does it kind of sit? That's a good question. And I don't fully understand <laughs> what happens. I don't think. <laughs> You know, I, I remember testifying before Congress, which was definitely one of those moments. I knew there's going to be heated exchanges, but I think it's one of the most calm experiences I've ever had. Like I, I was not, my heart wasn't racing. I wasn't sweating. I wasn't shaking. Um, and I think in a lot of other situations like that, something kicks in that isn't really um, articulated by me or, or intentional where I kind of slow down and I, there is a calm to it. I think part of that is when I know that my head and my heart and fist are all on the same page or all in a line, I think there's something that can be really calming and empowering about that. Like even if it's a controversial situation or you know, you know, you've got to get into it with somebody or it's going to be antagonistic. Um, if you feel very grounded in the position you're speaking from, I think that can be, um, it, it completely changes the dynamic so that you're not nervous at all. And if anything, like I really look forward to those opportunities because I feel like that's where I'm able to truly be me. And if someone is antagonistic, like I can step up to that and that's uh, permitted in those spaces. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it's like the you know through through preparation and repetition, you're, it's like you're able to get into a headspace that isn't just this you know whatever this 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 very intense stressful situation. It's just like all right, I can do this. <laughs> well, so at, the, at the TED conference I was just at, I mean, a good example of that was I woke up like I get really bad migraines a lot, and for whatever reason that day, of course, of course, of all days, like I wake up and I just had a absolutely brutal migraine all day um you know the kind where it's like you can't really even see straight and you're not thinking clearly and i'm just like oh man i'm just gonna just tank like i'm gonna get up there and those bright lights are gonna make it even worse and i'm just gonna just forget everything um but i think the preparation is what does it like i was so ocd about prepping for these talks and having everything down that i just you know had that migraine but went up and was on not autopilot, but in a sense, like I could be present, but still um, knew the material enough that I wasn't shaken by that. And that felt really good to be able to get done with it that way. Yeah, that's exciting. Like, you, you felt you had what everybody obviously wants in their life control, where it's like, oh, I, I, feel, I feel good about that. Yeah, like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and obviously because, uh, you know, most of your, your work obviously published, um, and, uh, and otherwise from an activism standpoint, all centers around the animal agriculture, um, you know, business. And obviously that stems, your interest in that stems from, you know, your vegan diet. Um, and obviously the, the activism that you've participated in, um, where, when did you kind of first start to, um, I know this is very origin story esque, but when did you first start to kind of like become aware, um, that that was obviously such a, um, you know, booming business. And that was something that you obviously didn't want to take a part of. Yeah, I think I was, um, I was about 18. I was working at the, uh, radio station, KVRX in Austin. Um, I think I was just DJing then, or maybe I had started soon after to work in the news department as well. Um, but a really close friend of mine um, was a vegetarian, and she just kind of mentioned in passing, like, hey, Will, you know, you're getting involved in all these political issues. Like, I was learning about the economic sanctions on Iraq, and the, um, I think kind of WTO issues were just coming up around that time, and uh, environmental issues. And she's like, well, it doesn't really make sense why you would also just not be vegetarian. And she gave me a book, uh, Diet for a New America by John Robbins. And that was it. I mean, it really helped that I kind of had a crush on her, you know, as these things tend to go, uh, <laughs> that might be a little bit more receptive to what she was saying and not defensive at all. Um, but that was it. I read the book and immediately went vegetarian. And then a buddy of mine through the hardcore scene kind of said similar things about, well, if you're vegetarian, like, why don't you just start making dinner with us? We make these big vegan dinners before shows like three or four times a week. Um, and then we'll all just go to the show together. And so I started doing that. And before I knew it, I was vegan as well. So that's kind of how, I, you know, I guess I was around 18 Been stuck with that ever since. People get so intimidated when you make a choice as a teenager and then you've like stuck with it because obviously the notion is that, you know, your, your beliefs and, uh, passions change, especially when you're making these decisions at uh, such a young age. And I think a lot of what I've noticed is people feel disarmed because like they reflect on themselves and they're like, Oh, I haven't even stuck with like, you know, working out for six months or something like that. Um, have you noticed that that sort of like, uh, I guess, defensive, 
defensive reaction from people, um, even separating from the fact that, you know, they may have a problem with you, you know, not eating hamburger or whatever. I, I do think so. I think some of the most, um, most defensive reactions sometimes stem out of people's own recognition that you might be doing something that they agree with, but they're not doing. And I think that makes people fight back the hardest sometimes and look for reasons to try to pick you apart in different ways. The part of the, exactly what you were just saying, I think really stems from our culture's dismissal of youth and the values that young people have. I think we don't give young people nearly enough credit. Um, the fact that you can make a decision, forget being 18. I mean, if 12, 13, seven years old, I mean, you can recognize your values and act on them, but our culture really dismisses that and says it's something that, well, you're only doing out of some misguided youthful rebellion or maybe not even rebellion, just misguided youth. And I think that's really unfortunate because those values, I think for a lot of us don't change. Um, in a lot of ways, I think I'm pretty much the same person I was at that time for better or worse, you know, in, in both camps. Um, but in terms of my commitment to in trying to live a compassionate life, sustainable life, um, a life aligned with social justice, I mean, that hasn't changed at all. Yeah, no, it's it's really exciting and engaging from that perspective because yeah, you do see um, you know people filter in and out of it, and it's like when you when you find the lifers, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not alone in this fight. <laughs> well, honestly, I think part of that, the people who are the lifers or the people that have um, really stood by those values, a big part of it is community, um, and I think that circles back to you know, discussions about punk and hardcore as well. There's even been some research. Um, looking into people who come out of those subcultures as being more committed to uh, vegetarianism than people who are not. And a big part of it is the community of people you're around, reinforcing those values and legitimizing them and reminding you that it's okay. It's very interesting. That actually leads perfectly into a question that I was going to ask you. Um, the uh, Obviously, there's a uh, intersection between punk and hardcore in the activist world, like you've been illustrating um, throughout this conversation. Um, is it interesting for you to uh, run across people who maybe in this, maybe in the same uh, activist sphere or, um, or uh, you know, or, or obviously your literary contemporaries and uh, people that have kind of come at it obviously from a completely different angle um is it one of those things you're just like oh i guess there are other other entry points because all the people that i know <laughs> like you know it's just i'll use that anecdotal example where it's just like i mean i, I myself am, am straight edge and have been straight edge since i was 15 years old um but then obviously as the movement changes and it's like now some of my coworkers who are whatever 22 or 23 years old found out about straight edge through uh davy havoc whereas like you know people like you you and i would find out about it through you know minor threat earth crisis whatever the stereotypical straight edge band is so it's like it, it makes my mind do like a reset of just kind of like oh yeah oh wow that's crazy like davy havoc is your origin story as opposed to um you know like i was saying so it's like is, is it funny for you to see people uh in the activist world that it's just like wait you've never gone to a show before oh yeah it blows my mind i mean those are the people that i put up on like they're on a different plane to me like i don't understand <laughs> i don't understand it i meet people who you know find who are vegan who have never gone to a show, have no interest at all in that type of a world. And I'm just like, so you just came to this? Like you just <laughs> like found it on your own? And a lot of them have. They just, without any outside influence or prodding, had some kind of epiphany 
uh, of making those connections. And I was not smart enough for that. I was not plugged in enough. Like I needed to have um, that type of community to plug into. So I'm really in awe of, of people who come to that on their own terms. Uh, you know, maybe not from the Davy Havoc side of things, but more from the like, you know, get into activism just because uh, you, you have this kind of internal compass that's pointing you in that direction. I think that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it feels like those people are obviously like fully formed into a world where it's like, oh man, I took like 40 steps to get where you're at. Well, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I'm like, oh, it took me so long. I mean, I mean, even in high school, I remember having a friend of mine went vegan. I don't even remember how I processed that because I think there was no processing. Like my brain just wasn't ready <laughs> to conceptualize that, you know? And it just like really went in one ear and out the other. And I probably even made some like, goofy jokes about it just because I, I I was not there. I was not ready for it. Um, and so meeting people like that is really inspiring to me because it shows like willing we have to be to engage people at all different levels and, and possibly at multiple times throughout their lives until they're ready to, to be open to those types of ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. You never know when a person is going to, um, you know, turn in whatever direction, uh, you're attempting them to turn. It's like, well, you may not be ready now, but you know, maybe in two years you'll be, maybe in 10 years, who knows? (laughs) Part of that is just having faith in people. You know, I always try to remind people like it's okay to lose faith in politicians and cops and churches and governments. And you you probably should lose faith in all of those things, but you can't lose faith in the, the people that are around you because, they can come to those conclusions. Like just because you've decided to go vegan or you're straight edge or you're uh, an anti-war activist or whatever, and you think you've come so far or you're so enlightened, doesn't mean other people can't do that too. And I think we really have to recognize our own hubris and arrogance um, that, that we get pulled into those little worlds like we were talking about earlier and you forget who else is out there. Yeah, absolutely. You got Yeah, Yeah, you have to keep that in check. Um, two last things I want to hit on before uh, I left you. you. You had the uh, cool privilege of being featured on a split seven inch with uh, Rise Against in regards to uh, a record store day release that featured your spoken word. Was it? Uh, what sort of feedback have you gotten from that in regards to? I mean, because obviously their audience is definitely primed to uh, not only hear uh, ideas that they may not have ever been exposed to before. Um, but was it, uh, you know, have people reached out to you be like, oh, I've, I, now I bought your book or whatever. Like what sort of uh, feedback have you got from that? Cause that, even though it's not a revolutionary idea, including spoken word on a, um, you know, r- recorded bands output, um, it's less and less these days. Whereas like, obviously in the mid nineties, that was like part and parcel. It's like you had one song and then 20 minutes of spoken word or whatever. But, <laughs> um, what sort of feedback have you gotten from that? Well, and also, you know, what was different about Rise Against is, you know, I was thinking about, you know, like the man is the bastard split and things like that, that had a much different audience, you know, with rise against, they're at a, a level where people like us are significantly older, I guess, know about them from their many years they've been around, but then there's a lot of really young kids that are just obsessed with them. And that was what was most inspiring to me about, what's happened after that release is seeing things online um, just through, you know, searches and people tagging things on Tumblr or Instagram or even messages I've received um, some from pretty young listeners, like 14, 15 that have said, like, 
I had no idea anything like this was happening. And I just loved to rise against and I got this record and this is completely blowing my mind. Um, and to me, that, that's just incredible. Um, some of these messages are, these kids have said like, you know, I don't even remember ever reading a book that was not assigned in school, but I picked up this book because, you know, rise against had you on this record. And now I have all these questions and I want to do this, this, and this. I didn't expect that to happen. Um, and that's really inspirational and rewarding to me to see it have that kind of an influence and also makes me really grateful for rise against, uh, to do something like this. I mean, they could do at this point, there's such a big deal. Like they could do anything they want for a record store day release. Uh, but they chose to do a split like this and also chose to have some, you know, really hard hitting imagery on the cover. They had, uh, resources inside. I mean, I have nothing but a huge amount of respect for them for doing that. No, absolutely. It was really exciting and engaging to see that, even as a person who obviously, you know, I don't need any convincing. But just looking at that, like you said, I, I imagine everything, all those comments that you're receiving, that's like, you know, in an ideal world, what I would imagine to happen. I'm just glad that you have obviously reaped the positive benefits from that. It's exciting. You know, just because you have obviously been steeped in uh, the activist world and obviously a lot of your writing centers on that, you can, you can do fiction. Are you going to sidestep? Is there one of those things where it's like, you know, what would you like to do that is kind of, uh, you know, devoid of the context that you're currently in right now? Or is it one of those things where you're just like, oh, I want to I want to double down on this because obviously I'm, I've, I feel momentum. I'm so passionate about it. Um, not so much on focusing what you're doing next, but like what sort of a, uh, uh, sidestep would you like to take? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And that's kind of where I'm at in a lot of ways right now uh, in my life, you know, professionally and personally is I've been immersed in these issues in this world for so long. Like it's really taken a toll. Like it's really run me down um, health-wise, you know, psychologically, emotionally, all those things. Um, and I'm actually just got out to Michigan. I'm doing a, a night fellowship which is a journalism fellowship that allows you a lot of space to explore and, and to try a lot of different things. Um, so that's what I'm kind of evaluating right now for this year. I mean, fiction is something I've always been uh, interested in. You know, like I said at the start of this conversation, that's all, you know, at its core, what got me into journalism is a love for the written word, even more than a love for the techniques or the craft of journalism. Um, so that's something I want to, you know, allow myself the time to just explore and to give a shot to. Um, I have a really hard time with that because the nature of the work I do is just a constant flood of breaking news and bad things happening that need a response or need to be exposed or shared with other people or whatever. So it feels like kind of a guilty pleasure in some ways or a guilty uh, reprieve to step back from that and move over to to fiction or screenwriting or something else. Um, but something I definitely want to do. And I think that's, I don't know. I don't know if that would be the next book or not, but um, I think that's something that's definitely in the future. That's exciting. Cause I definitely think that the activist world there, there comes that point where, um, you, you need to, um, uh, for lack of a better term, like disconnect and not so much like disconnect from the fight, but just be able, like you said, to um, take, take it from a different perspective and then be able to still have that as a part of your life, but not be, the end all be all because uh, at the end of the day it's like there's only so much that you can do you singularly as a person can do and so it's like to be able to give yourself that um i guess clearance to be able to explore the other creative arts like that's it's just exciting that you obviously um can allow yourself to do that because i think a lot of people um sometimes don't feel 
the ability to like let themselves go like that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think part of it to me, as I'm thinking through issues like this, it's thinking about, you know, what we're as artists or writers, what you're aspiring to create. And I think to me with the book and the reason my first book took so long is I wanted to create something that wouldn't, that, that could withstand the test of time, at least a little bit, that wouldn't just be, you know, the story of the hour, but that you could pick it up 10 years later, 15 years later, and the stories of the people inside of it would still resonate and still have value and meaning and emotion. Um, and I think that's what the best literature does as well. I mean, whether or not it's based in current events, it can still tell deeper truths about current struggles in our own political reality. And I think, I don't know, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's something that I, I certainly would like to give a shot at. No, that's, that's right. Well, I, 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 for one, give you permission, Will, so do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all I need, actually. <laughs> that's, that's per- yeah, you just, you just need some, someone else, a, a, a random stranger being like, you know what, Will, I like your work, and I, I think you can do other stuff, dude. <laughs> well, Will, thank you so much for your time. I honestly really appreciate this, and I, I hope this was a, enjoyable for you in some capacity of, of not just being like, so green is the new red is about communism, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for not asking that question. Sweet. Now, I'm, I'm trying a new little uh, bridge there when I stop the interview and then go into this outro. So just let me try in a few different things. And uh, obviously, if you like one, email me, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I've loved hearing uh, a lot of feedback from, honestly, a lot of people recently. And because of my jury duty and just general hecticness, I haven't been able to get back to you. And I know like almost every person that's like, oh, email me, and then they don't get back to you. You're just like, oh, what? you told me to do that. So, But I promise I will respond to your email. And then uh, whether or not you like it, we probably will create a relationship <laughs> because I'm pretty invested in the people that listen to this show uh, in ways that uh, some people might not be ready to take in their lives. Thank you very much for emailing me. The show, as always, is produced by Tom Richfield. Visit the show's website, 100wordspodcast.com. Exciting stuff coming up in the month of October. Themed month. And I know a lot of you enjoy the themed month. So uh, anyways, please, until next week, be safe, everybody. Everybody.